Today is um, the second of two messages from Revelation. Uh, Next week we will be in the book of Ephesians. Pastor Bruce and others will be leading us in a series on that. Uh, So last week we looked at Revelation, uh, providing an overview overview of the entire book, uh, going chapter by chapter. And I have actually reshaped those notes as a reading guide for the book. And if you wanted a copy of that reading guide, uh, feel free to email me, and I would be uh, happy to send those out to you. My email, like everyone else, is around here. My name is up front, and then the rest, uh, forestgrovecc.com, but harry at forestgrovecc.com. Why would we want to try to understand this book, which is extremely uh, difficult and puzzling for many people? Um, Because for the believers of the early church, Uh, They were invited to be overcomers and to live victoriously. And not only that, but then the book also outlines spiritual realities, resources, that would hopefully enable these people in the early church uh, to live as overcomers. I mean, you can't miss the language. And I'm going to give you the example of just Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, The verses on the screen here in a moment here, but I'll just go through those seven. Uh, These are seven letters written to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And with the NIV translation 2011 and uh, that came out, uh, the word victorious, you can't miss it. So all seven churches. So the church at Ephesus, to the one is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Uh, to the church in Smyrna, to the one is victorious, or the one is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And that's quite significant because it's that church where the prophetic word is that there was some that would be thrown into prison and die out of that church. And we'll mention that church here in a few moments. But it's not only the church in Smyrna because then with each of these seven letters, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the message to the church of Smyrna really is a message for all the other six churches as well. Uh, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, or 2.26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Uh, 3.5, to the one who is victorious, will like them be dressed in white. That's the church at Sardis. Uh, White is the color of heaven, or heaven uh, certainly the color that is reflected in the book of Revelation. Uh, 3.12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. That's the church of Philadelphia. And then the final one is to the one who is victorious, I will give them the right to sit on my throne. But you can't miss it, right? All seven churches, to the one who is victorious, the one who is victorious, the one who is victorious, the one who is victorious. And that language, is we pick it up in various places uh, through the whole book of Revelation. The historical background that prompted this emphasis was the issue of the coming persecution. Uh, Revelation is a prophetic book, different streams within that prophetic statement or uh, expression. But one is the persecution that was already there in a selected and specific places, but also the persecution that would come. And that language about the death of believers and martyrdom is, uh, shows up frequently through Revelation, uh, through the entire book. 
So it's under that background that the appeal is made for believers to not only stay true, uh, but that they would also be victorious in life, but equally potentially in death as well. So Revelation was written to encourage, to exhort, and a certain type of literature was used. The genre of literature was apocalyptic, common during New Testament times. During times of evil and suffering, this type of literature would remind readers and our listeners that God with the righteous would prevail. And a key component to this type of literature was the extensive use of symbolism, with exaggerated pictures, visions, and sometimes even bizarre pictures as well. So our circumstances are radically different than from what these people were experiencing when Revelation was written almost close to 2,000 years ago. But nonetheless, the application is apparent for us as well. We want to be overcomers in life. We want to be victorious in life. And as we are here at the onset of 2018, uh, certainly we look at this new year and we say, we want to be victorious in terms of a relationship with God and relationship with life as well. So what are the spiritual realities that were pictured for the early church? And could they equally speak to us? And indeed, I would say they could speak to us. So I've identified seven of these pictures in Revelation. And to a large extent, as we walk through these from chapter 1 right through to the end, though we're not going to be looking at all the chapters, but they provide a thematic summary and overview for Revelation. So those of you who who were here last week, we did a summary of the book, an overview from chapter 1, 2, 3, all the way through to the end, chapter 22, Today will be a thematic summary and overview of Revelation. So, seven different thoughts, pictures, snapshots that come through from the book of Revelation. So, number one, Christ stands among his people. So, that would be Revelation 1, 2, and 3. In those chapters, especially chapter 1, we have a vision of Jesus Christ who appears to John and begins to communicate with John. And then afterwards, that vision continues into chapters 2 and 3, where Christ is standing among the lampstands, representing the churches, and he begins to communicate with those churches. So it's a picture appealing to the right side of the brain, to the mind, to these early believers. And as they heard this, they would see a picture of Jesus Christ, in a sense, in a real sense, standing among them, standing among them as uh, their respective churches. So Revelation 2.1 would be an example of that. This is the church at Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands, again, represent the seven different churches. So what we really have in 1, 2, and 3 is really an amplification of the words that Jesus gave to his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew where he gave the Great Commission, but then as a part of the Great Commission, he also said, Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is a message in part, in a large part, that John, by the Spirit of God working through him, is wanting to communicate to these churches that are about to come under some very oppressive times 
and the persecution related with that. Now, we affirm that by faith, even as we consider Paul the Apostle in the New Testament as well. He has this line in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He said, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And there are times where we, as we reflect in Scripture, maybe as we sing a song and we, we pause and we say, I'm not alone here, but the Lord stands beside me. And as the Lord stands beside me, he gives me strength. So we, we affirm that. We assert that. We, we stand with this, with Revelation 1, 2, and 3, that the Lord stands beside us and he gives us strength. Uh, we do that by faith, but sometimes we also do it or we experience it as well. I want to suggest that visions and dreams where Christ comes and stands with his followers can sometimes happen and be the experience of believers in Jesus Christ. So again, going back to Paul the Apostle, here he is, he's in Corinth in Acts chapter 8, and he has this vision of Jesus Christ who appears to him. And the vision when Jesus, as he speaks to him, he says, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. In the sovereignty of God, there are times, places, situations where Christ manifests himself. And the history of Christianity is full and replete with stories of people where Christ came to them, be it a vision or a dream, and spoke to them and communicated something to them. Certainly was true of the early church as well. Uh, one of the individuals that was martyred for his faith about 50 or 60 years post the writing of the book of Revelation, was the bishop of Smyrna, uh, Polycarp. He was put to death as an elderly leader at age 86. The year of his death was 155 A.D. But he went to his death with confidence, victorious, and courage, because God had provided him a vision just three days before his death of the manner of, death, of his death, which when he came to that point, when he was apprehended and taken to the point of his death, he had already been there three days before, and Jesus had communicated that to him. Christ stands among his followers. Revelation 1, 2, and 3, basically an amplification of that truth. Truly, I stand with you, and I'm with you to the very end of the ages. That's a significant part of living in a victorious spirit. Revelation 4 and 5, the second one, God is on his throne. Those two chapters picture God the Father, God the Son, and in a more subtle way, the Spirit as well, as being on the throne. This is intentionally done right at the onset of the book, as these people are about to go to persecution and experience persecution in different ways, this word, this picture is intentionally put right up front that they would know that God is on his throne and that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth and that he has everything under his control. So a verse that comes out of that is that of the living creatures where we have these living creatures in heaven, these four living creatures, and it's said of them day and night. They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, who was and who is and who is to come, the Lord God Almighty. Now, 
we wouldn't pick it up right here from that verse, but that expression of the Lord God Almighty is used seven times in Revelation, quite intentionally in all likelihood. There are all kinds of these groupings of seven through the book of Revelation. We've got the seven churches and the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of God's wrath. But equally, parallel with that, we have groupings of seven. We're not, they're not identified, but it's kind of like waiting for the reader and the listener to discover. So we got seven beatitudes, seven blessings. But we also have this expression, the Lord God Almighty, that is sort of scattered throughout the book of Revelation seven different times with the hope and the intention that the reader would discover it. So it would be reinforced in a subtle way that, yes, there is a throne. God is on that throne. And the God who's on that throne is the Lord God Almighty. And there would be this sense that we can live victoriously Because we're not alone. God's not asleep. God's awake. He's on his throne. And he is there involved in the issues that people are facing. God is on his throne. He reigns. We capture that through scripture. We capture that by exerting faith, exercising faith. And we say, yes, God is on his throne. Though the circumstances around me might suggest otherwise, but by faith we declare that and we affirm that. Can you imagine how difficult it might have been for people in the midst of persecution, losing loved ones, and in the midst of that is God on his throne, and, but needing to come back to this very picture here, Revelation 4 and 5, as this passage or this word was read in the congregational setting and being reminded again that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit on the throne. We celebrate that by the songs that we do. There are all kinds of songs that we sing that relate to the reign of God and the greatness of God, the majesty of God. Um, we Even going further back, of course, we have Handel's Messiah, which breaks out with the Hallelujah Chorus of Revelation 19 and the reoccurring line, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. So Revelation 4 and 5 would reflect that second reality, this this picture that God is on his throne. And the more that we connect with chapters 4 and 5, and again, even as I said last week, the more I put my nose into the book of Revelation and live in the book of Revelation, the more that I come out persuaded, reminded um, that God is on his throne and that has implications in terms of how I view life and the world around me. Number three, we're going into Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 is the chapter with 144,000 that they are sealed. And the point with number three is believers are sealed and spiritually safe now through to eternity. Uh, Believers, these 144,000 really representing all believers at all times, they are sealed. Revelation 7, 3 Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Sealed and safe from what? Sealed and safe from the wrath of God. That may not seem like a big deal, for we live in a time where seemingly the wrath of God isn't taken very seriously. And yet, biblically, it is a really big deal. You know, if we took everything about the wrath of God out of the book of Revelation, we would really gut this book. There wouldn't be much left. I mean, it is there. It's introduced with seal number six of the seven seals. It's announced and given expression with the seven trumpets of God. 
It finds full expression with the seven bowls of God's wrath. And then further, it finds amplification with the destruction of Babylon, which would, I would understand is the empire of Rome. And if that isn't enough in the book of Revelation, we also have the wine press of God's wrath in Revelation chapter 14. It is from this that the, see- the believer in Christ is sealed and safe from the wrath of God. But it should be noted that though believers are sealed, that doesn't mean believers are exempt from the possibility of martyrdom. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 would be an example of that. We have the story of the two witnesses who represent the ministry and ongoing ministry of the church back then and equally today as well. The two witnesses were protected, but when their work was done, they are killed, but after three and a half days, they are whisked up to heaven and taken into the presence of God. So it is a picture of victory and a picture of connection between earth and heaven itself. And believers really are immortal till God's work for them is done. Uh, That story of Revelation chapter 11 reminds me of another story of a woman uh, who was part of the early church. Uh, Her name was Perpetua, who was also among the martyrs of the early church. She was put to death in 203 AD. She's only 22 years of age. It is said the story about her shortly before Roman officials in Carthage. And the issue here, the issue is, the emperors, the depending, and it varied depending on which emperor in Rome, was looking for emperor worshiper, worship. They were the gods. They were the lords. And they were compelling at different provinces and different settings believers to confess them as the Lord. And Christians, sensitive Christians, could, all, could say that there's only one Lord and only one God. And they couldn't do it. And the consequence of that was the execution and the killing of these people. So it's said of her shortly before Roman officials in Carthage ordered her execution as a Christian, the young woman had a vision of a ladder leading to heaven with a dragon at his foot. He will not harm me, she said, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then she stepped on his hand, head and climbed up the ladder, which took her into the presence of God, into heaven itself. And she understood this vision as the Lord's assurance that she would triumph through her martyrdom. She was a relatively new believer, still taking baptism classes, had not yet been baptized. Her father, not a believer, trying to get her to renounce her faith. But he wasn't successful. And in the end, with her death, she also left behind a young infant son. So, I mean, you could go online, you know, her name is, well, you just perpetual and take the L off, and that's her name. And you can find stories about her life and her ministry. But, but why did she do that? Well, it was the vision of the Lord that was given to her. But as also as a part of that, she couldn't deny her Lord. And eternally, she felt that she was totally safe. And she made that transition from this life into the next life. And prompted so by this vision of this ladder. Initially with Satan at the bottom of the ladder, but as she went up the ladder... It took her into the presence of God. So not all that dissimilar for the Revelation 11 story about these two witnesses and they're whisked up to heaven after being killed by those who are the perpetrators of the um, persecution. So that's number three. We're sealed, we're safe from now through all eternity. Number four comes in Revelation chapter 8 and it has to do with the prayers of God's people. The prayers of believers are effective 
and powerful. You know, a key question of Revelation, I suggested this last week, and I'll say it a couple of times here, is will there be justice? And if so, how? Where will it take expression? So the key question for, in my estimation, would be Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and you avenge our blood? So there's a question about when, when are you going to judge and when are you going to avenge the blood of those that have died for uh, you? So just before Christmas, I think it was around December 15th, there, was about, uh, there were two gunmen that in Pakistan stormed the church and they killed, I think, at least eight or nine people and they injured about 40-plus people. And for the loved ones, those who didn't die, for those who remained, uh, Revelation 6.10 has to be a critical question. I mean, this is so removed from us, but there are places in the corner of the world here where people probably really gravitating to this stuff and, and reading it with gut feeling. Um, they're saying, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And part of their question, too, is, God, do you hear our prayers? Does it make a difference? How, how do you respond to all of this? And so here you have this really fascinating picture in Revelation 8 about prayer. Chapter 8, verses 3, 4, and 5. It's a picture of the response of God to the injustices of people of God and the prayers that they're being voiced because of that injustice. It's a, it's a heavenly scene. An angel is there. Another angel in 8.3 who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people. Don't miss that one. On the golden altar in front of the throne. So this is right in the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. So the prayers are there. Then the angel. So the prayers are not only there, but listen to this now. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. An earthquake is always imagery for, for the judgment of God, for the, the wrath of God that comes. In other words, what it's saying to these people who are struggling about the question, is there going to be justice? God is going to do anything? Will our prayers be heard? They are provided this very picture right here. And I don't know this for sure, but I would suspect possibly the believers in Pakistan who experienced these atrocities less than a month ago, they may be gravitating to these very verses right here. Um, Eugene Peterson, when he wrote his commentary on Revelation, and I mentioned this last week, he, rever he, he entitled his commentary on Revelation all built around these three verses right here. Reversed thunder. Reversed thunder. It is like the prayers of God's people going up, and as the prayers of God's people are there, find their place in the throne room of God, there is this reverse thunder that comes back to earth against the perpetrators of the injustices. This is a fascinating title, which pictures it well, too. This is so important in the book of Revelation that when we're in the throne room seen back in chapter 5, we're introduced to these living creatures and these 24 elders. In chapter 5, verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb, and each one had their harps, and, and they all had their golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. 
So it's already introduced in chapter 5, verse 8, with the anticipation that it'll be expanded further when you get to chapter 8 as well. The implications of this for living as overcomers victorious is this, this message that comes through that God is active. God's doing something. We pray these prayers related to matters of injustice and God's responding and fast, as we would see here in chapter 8, verses 3, 4, and 5. So that's number four. Number five has to do with Satan. Christ has prevailed and will prevail over Satan. Uh, Satan is mentioned in three of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. Satan is fully introduced in chapter 12 as the architect of all the evil connected to the persecution. And in chapter 12, though it's not detailed, certainly the victory of Christ by way of the cross over Satan is clearly understood. But we have Satan's final and full demise in Revelation 20. So 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. When the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, they will be, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so it's interesting. This is a future reality, but given the certainty of the event, it is written and penned as if it's already in the past as we read this. The challenge for us, and I would include myself in this, um, are we so sophisticated, or are we too sophisticated for belief in the reality of Satan? We don't take Satan seriously. I mean, Revelation takes Satan seriously from chapter 1 right through the end of the book. Um, it's helpful for me when I hear people outside even of um, speak of the reality of 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 evil in our world, and that there must be a hand behind this reality. I, I've mentioned this before from this setting in here, but, uh, you know, the story about Rwanda back in the 1990s, thousands of Rwandans were butchered by their fellow citizens. Romeo Dallaire, the Canadian general appointed by the United Nations to oversee the ill-prepared peacekeeping mission, witnessed much of the horrific outcomes. So the story is... Like 800,000-plus people killed in about 100 days in Rwanda. Uh, other people suggest a number of a million people uh, as these tribal groups fought in that uh, country. Uh, Romeo Dallaire, in telling his story, entitled his book, Shake Hands with the Devil. Doing so with the conviction that the devil was alive and well. In his own words, I, quote, I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him. I have smelt him. I've touched him. And I know the devil exists. And there's nothing else in that book that Romeo Dallaire, as he tells the story, that really talks about any spiritual dimension aside from this. Naming his book, Shake Hands with the Devil. Someone, something evil to the core is creating some of the wicked havoc that we see in our world. And from a Christian perspective, a biblical Christian perspective, that is none other than this evil one that is reflected in the book of Revelation, Satan himself. I have this little story of a preacher, and I'm not wanting to be funny here on this topic here, but one preacher from the past said, there are some who say there is no such thing as a devil. When I heard that, I felt like the prize fighter whose opponent was beating him half to death. As he stood in the stool between the rounds, his manager said to him, 
Go get him, tiger. He hasn't laid a hand on you. The fighter kind of cleared his hand, looked at the manager and said, then keep your eye on the referee because someone is beating the daylights out of me. Um, Someone is beating the daylights out of humanity. And ultimately, this question of was where is evil and how do we identify it? And, and what about this one called Satan in Scripture? That's a key part of the whole storyline of Revelation. Satan, Christ has prevailed over Satan, and Christ will prevail over Satan. It's, again, you take that out of the story of Revelation and you got the book. It's a significant component within this overall book. So that's number five. Number six, there's a day of justice and judgment coming. Uh, Revelation 19 would reflect that. Again, the critical question of Revelation, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge your blood? That's the key question in 6.10. Full justice comes in Revelation 18 with the fall of Babylon, a.k.a. Rome, uh, followed by the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, and the text is chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 that I've identified. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. So that's the issue in chapter 18 and the first part of chapter 19, connected with the Hallelujah chorus. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And so there's a justice piece that is being played out with this very book here. So again, you know, when you think about martyrs today and the organizations related to it, there's the voice of the martyrs. There's other organizations that work at informing the Christian world of present persecutions. And there are believers in, in Iraq and Egypt and Iran and Pakistan and other nations where persecution exists and they wrestle with this very question about the justice that is necessary. There is a day of justice coming, and it's played out against the backdrop of God's final judgment, Uh, but that would be reflected again in chapters 18 and 19. And then the final one is, uh, Christ is coming soon. Uh, You know, there are different ways to interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, There are those that I follow, and I'm part of this camp where you look at Revelation and you, you position it in history and what did it mean to the early church and what does it mean to the church as well today. And so I'm positioning it very much, as many other people are, in the context, the historical context of persecution that was happening. Uh, there are others that would come to the book of Revelation uh, that would see it primarily as a book about the future. And so from chapter 4, verse 1, they would see it as a blueprint about the end times. Uh, And so part of the challenge that comes for one and all of us in trying to sort out the book of Revelation are some of these competing interpretive views on Revelation. Uh, They are radically different in terms of how you approach this book. But the one thing that is common between these two different perspectives, is that Christ is coming. Uh, Christ is coming, and it's reflected especially towards the end of the book here, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 and 16. I picked that up. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
So Christ is coming. We just come through the season of celebrating his first coming. We are in anticipation of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, consistent with Jesus and his words to his disciples to keep watch. And so there's a sense in which as we live life, there's a sense in which we always have an eye, one eye to the heavens, the anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ will usher in that new reality, that new Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which we will see, which we see pictured in Revelation 21, right through to the early verses of chapter 22, verse 5. And victorious living and thinking, this invitation to these seven churches, was more apt to come as, as, as these early believers were to live with this anticipation of this new hope and this new future, and equally, of course, for us as well. So, for the top of 2017, what are the spiritual realities that can enable us to live more victoriously? Hopefully, in, did I say 2017? We're at the top of 2018. I'm sorry. Uh, we're at the top of 2018. There are these seven realities. Christ stands among his people. Uh, God is on his throne. Believers are sealed and safe now through to eternity. Prayers, especially on these matters of justice, are effective and powerful. Christ has prevailed and will prevail over Satan. Uh, there is a day of justice and judgment coming, and Christ is coming soon. I would like to suggest that that can help us to think differently and live differently. And I would conclude with this line out of Revelation 5, verse 10, that says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Uh, and they will reign on the earth. And that's a message for us. As people who embrace these revelation realities, they will be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And not only does God reign in the heavens, but we are invited to reign on earth in our living. It's in the present tense. We reign and continue to reign as we walk with him. Amen.